Hello and welcome to the Root Simple Podcast. We're the audio companion to the Root Simple blog, where we cover gardening, home economics, and DIY living. This show is hosted by myself, Eric Knudsen, and Kelly Coyne, who is hanging out in the background on this episode. We are the authors of The Urban Homestead and Making It, Radical Home Act for a Post-Consumer World. Our guest this week is natural, no-treatment beekeeper, Kirk Anderson. Kirk is our beekeeping mentor and one of the most amazing people in Los Angeles. If you want to know what's really going on with the bees, Kirk has some provocative answers. Speaking of provocative, I left a few choice words in our conversation, so if you're a sensitive type, consider yourself warned. Now, here's my conversation with Kirk Anderson. So, welcome, Kirk, to the Root Simple Podcast. Sure, pal. <laughs> Great to have you on. About, about time we did that. So, yeah, um, let's do it. All right. So I thought we'd start with, how did you get started in beekeeping? I remember this great story you told. Oh, man, I was. I have a friend named Stu Gelb who lives in Denver, Colorado now. Stuart Gelb and Mary Gelb. They had just moved to Salt Lake City from the Wheeler Ranch commune down by San Francisco. I think the guy that owned the commune, the land, tried to will that property to Jesus. Was, was there a movie about that place? or There could have been. Yeah. Anyways. But anyway, the city didn't think Jesus was entitled to owning it. So they got mad, <laughs> and everyone had to move. So they moved to Salt Lake City, and Stu was in the carpenter apprenticeship program for the union there, and that's where I met him. And we were one January day participating in some herb usage, <laughs> and we were hungry. <laughs> Not so, pollinated by bees, right? No. Yeah, the kind is the, yeah. Yeah, so we, uh, he said there's, he got out some honey. Well, you know, that was Stu's idea for munchies. Mine was more like corn chips, but we, he had some <laughs> honey, and he said, you know, they want $18 for a 60-pound can of honey. And I said, that's outrageous. We should get some bees. So I had a chemically-induced epiphany, and I went and ordered some bees from... Uh, Montgomery Ward. Wow. That's how I got started. Right out of the catalog. I didn't know Shinola about bees. <laughs> <laughs> and then what happens? So you get the bees out of the catalog. Well, then the bees are coming, right? I said, well, maybe I should know what I'm doing a little bit. Mm-hmm. So this is pre-internet. So I went down to the uh, Dewey Decimal System at the library and looked up bees. And I got the ABC XYZ of beekeeping. And when I got that book, I realized I'd have to be a Ph.D. to be able to keep bees. It was about a 1,000 pages mm-hmm. thick. I was, I was overwhelmed. So uh, Walter T. Kelly used to have a book. I think they still do call the How to Sell Honey and How to Keep Bees and Sell Honey, 120 pages. So I got a pair of scissors, and I cut all the pages out that I didn't understand. And there's about 40 pages left, and that's all I needed. That's what I used. <laughs> put the rest in my smoker. And so where did you put the bees at that point? You're my in... first package of bees I got from Montgomery Ward, they were called Midnights. Midnight wow. bees from the York Bee Company in upstate New York. They were black, they were a hybrid, and they were guaranteed to be nice and not mean. So they were the nicest, prettiest, 
most beautiful bees I've ever had. And they weren't worth a, a crap if you wanted honey or anything. But <laughs> they were nice. They, they just were didn't nice, make honey. you know. Right. So, and friendly, you know, and I could go up there with no bee suit, and they're really good. And, and then they croaked that winter because they, they didn't really have what they needed to get through. So after I had them about two weeks, I caught a swarm of bees at Sears on a camper truck, rearview mirror, when I was taking my Mary Tiller in to get fixed. And uh, huh. then I, and within a month, I had three, three hives. They, they had reproduced that from that one swarm. Well, I caught a couple swarms, and it's hard to have one beehive, you know that. Right. And then you have two, and then you have three, and people call you and say, I got bees over here and bees over there. And I, and then I, uh, the next summer, I bought 100 beehives from a lady in Gunnison, Utah, that her and her husband used to keep bees. She had 100 beehives in her backyard that had been there for 50 years. They'd been there so long, the nails were sticking out of the corners of the hives wow. and they had they made their own foundation and own high their own hives and the the boxes were the frames were 20 inches wide and 30 inches long they they were really odd and i mean they were three boxes tall they were all wow. five feet tall and so i bought an old 48 dodge flathead six cylinder truck to move them up to fruit heights utah it took me a few weeks to do it. Wow. But uh, I went from three to a hundred in no time. And what was that like going from three to a hundred? What was happening? It was happening like 100? Armageddon, man. It was like, uh, <laughs> it was like Watergate. It just exploded. So you're now you're in business as a beekeeper at that yeah, point. Yeah. Plus I was a single dad then and had three kids. And I moved them up there in the cherry orchards because Fruit Heights used to, used to be all just, you know, apricots, mainly cherries. Well, it was really good. They had a big water system up there. Every house up there had drinking water, but they all had a pressurized irrigation system that come up to their house. Mm -hmm. So uh, everybody had water, and there was fruit. Bountiful Utah, Fruit Heights, Utah was just nothing but orchards. So the first week they were up there, I got a call from a guy and said, you got to move your bees. They're so mean. They're chasing my ducks. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and my hives were like three, four hundred feet from the ducks, wow. so <clears throat> they were very mean. So this was before Africanized bees. People don't realize there was mean bees before there was mean bees. You think that mean bees was a brand new thing that you know, like this guy from Brazil went to South Africa and discovered mean bees. There had never been mean bees until he brought some from South Africa to Brazil, and they inadvertently got away and migrated up to up through the Isthmus of Panama to the U.S. now and blah, blah, blah. There's been mean bees since bees started because there's bees have a purpose for being mean, and that's to talk who's ever there into leaving. Well, it kind of makes sense, right? I mean, we're trying to steal their, their food, so yeah. eventually they're, they're going to be a little angry but about that. But, you know, that. it indicates man's ignorance, you know. Humans are real ignorant to the symbiotic philosophy of living and surviving with the other organisms in his universe. Mm-hmm. That's the human's main problem. He'll, that's why he invented laws, because he didn't want to get along with the other organisms. He wanted to mistreat them and have it be legal. <laughs> so he, he invented laws. <laughs> <laughs> I want to get back to the African bee thing later, but um, 
So you have the hundred hives, and how long did you, how long did you run that that many hives? Oh, for a couple of years, and then it got more than a single dad with three kids could do. So I sold them to a a nice Mormon bishop. His check never did clear, <laughs> but uh, it just kept bouncing. But I hope it went good for him. <laughs> So then there's a gap in beekeeping in your life, right? Yeah. And you, you moved from Utah at some point to California. Yeah, about ni- 1988, I come to L.A. And I was going down Sunset Boulevard one day. When was it? Must have been 90-something. And over here by the fire station there on Sunset, I seen the, uh, some people clearing up all this brush, and it said Echo Park Community Garden. And I noticed I had Glenn Dank and his phone number. So I called Glenn, and I joined the garden, and I said, I'd want bees. And he said, sure, bring the bees. So I bought a package of bees from a guy in Northern California, and I started. Got back going in L.A. then with yeah, beekeeping. Yeah, in L.A., yeah. Yeah, now at a certain point, uh, when did you, when did you, because you're kind of known as the natural beekeeper guru here. When did, when did you start raising bees naturally or did you always do that? Uh, I have, ne- I had never treated bees before. I had used foundation, but back then that was the seventies, right? I knew no one that treated bees for, for some people use teramycin for fowl brood. Back when I had bees in Utah, 1969, 1970, 71, 72, they had a state bee inspector, and you had to have your hives inspected once a year, and you had to pay him to do it. And the main thing they didn't want was foul brood. So when they inspected my 100 hives, they found two hives that had American foul brood. So they wrote me an order to destroy them. So I had to go up there, <clears throat> dig a big hole in the ground out in the middle of the alfalfa field. I stuffed a cotton rag in the entrance of the hive, opened the top up, poured in a cup of gas, taped the top down, and then took a hand truck and moved them down and put them in this hole. And then I lit them on fire. Wow. And I had to stand there till they were through burning. It took all day. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, with all that beeswax in there, it took all day for it to burn. And then I had to cover the ashes. Mm-hmm. So when I got back into beekeeping up here, I said, well, where should I get bees at? Uh, uh, so I found a supplier in Northern California, and uh, I noticed everyone was treating bees for mites. And I read where, I actually read on the internet that all the feral bees were dead. The mites had killed them all. I said, you know, that's odd, because you know, I'm painting a house up there by the Hollywood sign, and them suckers are underneath the tile, going like gangbusters. And then I painted a house over a couple blocks from here, and they were up coming in and out of the vent in the house. And I said, good Lord, there's, there's feral bees all over around here. And about that time, I found Michael Bush. So I sent him an email and said, you know, I don't think the feral bees are dead. I see them all over in L.A. He said, no, they're, they're still around. There's still a few around. I said, man, there's hundreds of them around here because I was on the Bee Masters Bee page until I got excommunicated for talking derogatorily about to some dentist about treating his bees for mites with Listerine. I told him I thought he was uh, maybe taking too much medicine. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so I said, hell, you know, 
Why would you buy them? Nature provides. So I just started, because back then you could order a pack of bees and package of bees and you could get them in, uh, in April. But you know around here, April, May, it's, it's over here. Yeah, it's too late. Yeah, so, uh, but I continued to buy packages and I, ha I bought four or five more packages and I didn't have very good results with them. They either succumbed or usually within a few months they would supersede the queen. And it's expensive too, right? It's like Yeah, yeah, it wasn't cheap. Yeah. I think the last package I bought was 140 or 150. Wow. But uh just 4 years ago there's a guy named Barnaby over on in Frogtown. He said I bought 3 packages of beets, could I pay to come help me install them? I said, "Don't worry about it." I said, "Just Brush some sugar water on the screen for a half hour or so and then bang the box on the ground so the bees are in the bottom of the cage, pry the top open and dump them in and then pull the queen cage. They said, no, no, I, I, I need some help. I said, why, don't you just, why didn't you just get some feral bees? He said, oh, I don't want any mean bees. So I went over there and I installed those three packages from up north. And he says, what do you think? I said, well, you've only got three pounds of bees. I says, it's the end of May. Uh, it's going to take a good 30 days before you have any new bees coming out. So you're going to have fewer bees every every day until you have new bees. Most packages are unhealthy. They come from unhealthy bees. I know the guy you ordered them from, they're open-mated, and he makes sure they have a good pattern before he sends them. But I said, take a look at it. That's a lot of work to raise queens put it in a hive, make sure they're laying correct, then take them out, put them in a cage, shake three pounds of bees in a, in a cage, put the queen in, hope to hell they accept her on the way, put them in, and then shake them in your hive, and in 30 days have more bees. You're asking a lot. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm thinking, but I, I did it for him. Well, he called me up and said, could you come over and help me inspect them the first time? I said, you know, they're factory bees. They're really nice. You know, They're not going to bother you. There's fewer bees than last time I was there because, you know, it hasn't been 30 days. He said, no, come over. <laughs> so I went over, and they were nice bees. They were the nicest bees. They were a pleasure to work. But two out of the three of them had supersedure cells. Uh -huh. But by September, they were all dead. Mm -hmm. So I said, I'll, I'll catch you. I'll bring you a couple swarms over. He said, no, 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 no. So the next year, he bought two from the guy up north and two from a supplier in Texas. I said, okay. So I went over and put them in, and he said, I got some plastic comb that's already drawn that's small cell. And I said, okay, good luck. And he said, well, what's the problem? I said, well, you got big bees. They all come from a 5.7 cell size, and you got 4.9 cells. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know if she can get her hind in and there lay any eggs, but, you know, over to you. It's your experiment. It's your bee thing. You're going to have fun. Good deal. Well, same thing. They all, all of them superseded, but one. One made it. So he calls me up in August and says, can you come help me? They're chasing my dog. They're chasing me. They're stinging the dog. And I said, no, I can't come help you. I'm too busy today. <laughs> so anyway, I went about a week later, and he hadn't added any boxes. They were in one box, mm -hmm. and they were really crowded. Mm -hmm. So I split them up, opened up the brood nest. I said, in a, in a, if, if the reason they're mean is because they're crowded, 
they should settle down, and they did. But then they died the next year. So I said, are you going to order some more bees? He said, no. And he just left the boxes there. The bees moved in. Last year, I said, how is it? He said, oh, it's wonderful. They're the most wonderful bees. So I went over there two months ago. He has three hives, all bees that moved in on their own volition. And we took a deep of honey mm. and four medium boxes of honey off of those three wow. hives. Wow. All feral bees. All feral bees. Killer bees. Killer bees. Africanized bees. I mean. uh, Let's talk about that because when you take up beekeeping here, if you go to the, which you probably shouldn't do, which is go to the local beekeeping association, they will tell you absolutely you have to order uh, packages from Northern California, at least outside of Africanized bee territory. What's been your experience with the local bees here, the, the Africanized bees? Well, the same experience I've had with all bees. Some get, some are mean. Some are just mean, period, you know? Some people are mean because they're crowded. Some bees are mean because they're crowded or they're queenless. Uh, some of them are mean because they're in the middle of a, you know, they're really strong and thriving. They might be in the middle of a swarm sequence. The beekeeper's technique might be bad. Mm-hmm. Someone might have bumped them, or uh, some animal might be harassing them. There's a myriad of things. It's like saying, "How come humans are mean?" You know, we're not all mean. We uh, probably all of us once or twice in our life might know one or two people that are just mean all the time. But we might meet people that, under certain circumstances, can get quite ornery. But not all the time. Mm-hmm. We even might be predisposed to a little anger ourselves once in a while, like when we, when we hear uh, that Republican guy that's in charge up there now in the Senate. You know, he might make you mad once in a while. But so you have to kind of take it as it goes. Uh, Africanized bees now is, is is been redefined. It isn't just bees from South Africa. It's any bee that's mean. Right. Right. That's like saying any young black guy from the age of 16 to 32 is a a suspicious person. That's what that's saying. Because uh, you can't really tell by looking at them if they're Africanized unless you really know what you're doing and you probably have a microscope. Yeah, do a DNA test. That's what I've Probably, yeah. Tell, so, tell the difference. Yeah, so like uh, naturally it's harder to keep bees in a urban environment because it's more there's more people per square mile than out in the uh out where you originally kept bees out where you used right? to have bees out on the farmland that right. just can totally contaminated anymore but you can go to youtube and say uh and search how to requeen a mean hive and there's a guy in there from ohio and he's standing next to a hive that's probably four or five or six boxes high and he said boy these guys are mean <laughs> and he shows you how to Put a queen excluder in between each box and then come back a week later and go through each box and find a box that's got eggs in it. And that's where the queen is, so you take that away. And, mm-hmm. But if you've ever tried to requeen a mean hive, it's virtually impossible. Mm-hmm. I, When I've ever dealt with it, I've, I've done Michael Bush's uh, idea of divide and conquer. That's where you split the hive. And, That's where uh, I say it's three boxes high. Mm-hmm. You just get two more bottom boards, two more top boards, and you take one box 100 feet that way and 
another box 100 feet that way, put a top on bottom on each one of them, and then come back in a few days, and then you can inspect each box because you've divided up the number of bees. Now, if you do that, two of those boxes will be queenless. Mm-hmm. And if they've got a, an egg in there or a one- or two-day-old larva, they will have started making a queen cell. But I've found that I've got bees, but, you know, and then it depends on your philosophy and what your plan is on being a beekeeper. If you are in the Nirman environment and you want to have bees and you want to look at your beehive every week, that's pretty good. You can probably do things in such a way and give them enough room and do your technique late in the day where you're not going to have trouble. But usually if your bees come at you when you're in the yard, they're probably going to be pretty hard to inspect. Well, so what are the other things you should do as an urban beekeeper that might be different than someone with a big farm? Well, you should do what John Wayne said. John Wayne said, life's hard, but it's harder when you're a dumbass. (laughs) So you probably should have a mentor. You should probably... Work your bees late in the day, so if you have an issue with them getting pissed off, nighttime comes and then the, everything settles down. You should make sure that you, your bees have more than enough room to expand into so they don't get crowded mm-hmm. because that'll help you prevent the swarming. Val, a girl I've been mentoring for three or four years, she gets those six-foot-high bamboo fences that are sewn together with wire. Mm-hmm. You know, they're six by eight. She's got bees in Studio City, and she just wraps it around the hive like a cone, and they go up six feet and leave, and no no person is ever by the entrance. Uh, you should have good smoke and take the time to smoke them and wait a while, smoke them again, wait a while, smoke them again, wait a while, till, you know, and make sure you're not doing anything else. You should probably tell your neighbors you're going to be working your bees. Mm-hmm. And tell them that them and their dogs should be, you know, in the house in case. You know, just common sense or good manners. Like, uh, I think last year, KABC called me up and said, we had an incident in North Hollywood. Some guy chopped a tree down, cut a tree down. There was a beehive in it. The bees were very angry. They killed the neighbor's dog. He had to run. The fire department come and foam the tree. He had to call an exterminator to come cut the tree up, bag up the bees. We got a guy that, we got to come interview you. So they came and they interviewed me and they said, why are the bees mean? I said, well, you chopped their house down and they hit the ground. They were pretty pissed off. And I and I said, well, the best, the best question to ask is how come the homeowner's a dumbass? And the, I was on the, they were videoing it. And he goes, uh, pardon? I said, the homeowner's a dumbass. <laughs> so they didn't put me on the news. <laughs> so you have things like that happen, and then everyone just kind of assumes that all the bees are mean. But I think if you took, even if you took Bill's bees, Bill out in Tahunga, I think even if you took his bees and dropped them or kicked them over, they would get mean. Yeah, Zach, I think we've both run across people who have done sort of amateur extermination jobs and half-killed bees, or like you're saying to people with the tree, like, why did they... I've read about exterminators that were taking bees out of a wall, and this guy's coming down the street in his in his wheelchair, and they he couldn't move fast enough, and they stung the <laughs> hell out of him. So, like, whenever you're uh, 
removing bees, especially live. Like I went to look at a house maybe five or six blocks from here. No, no, it was in Eagle Rock two years ago with Walker and, and Walker's neighbor's son, Henry. He had his own bee suit. He found his hive and he wanted to remove them. And they had me come over. When I got over there, just when they went to smoke them, there was probably 150 bees just going around like jet planes. Mm. And they were after everybody. So I told the neighbor to put her chick. I went and put the neighbor's chickens in. I said, you know, you can't remove these bees. They're too mean. There's no way you can manage them. So what you have to do is either leave them alone. And if you leave them alone, they won't bother anyone. But if anyone comes up around here and bumps it, so you might have to have somebody come up and do them in and remove them. I don't know what they did, but... So there there has been times where I, I haven't done them because it, it wasn't safe. But you've done a lot of bee removals, right? Oh, are there, are they particularly memorable, memorable well, bee removals? I remember removals my first trap out was on a chimney in Rose Park. Maybe you should explain what a trap out is. Not everyone <clears throat> okay, knows trap that out is. is is you got bees in a void. So you, you make a wire cone. I used to use what's called a one-way bee escape. And, and you arrange for the bees to come out of one spot, but they can't get back in. So when they can't get back in, you put a box up there with a... I put a box of a five-frame cardboard box with a frame of nurse bees and eggs, freshly laid eggs or one-day-old larvae so they can make a queen. So they, when they come back in, they go in that box because they don't have any choice. And then when the box is filled up and the bees quit coming out, you then fill in the hole mm-hmm. in the house or whatever and then take the box away. My first one was uh, in Rose Park, Utah, which is a suburb of Salt Lake City, on top of a chimney. Mm. It went really good. Then the day I took it down, I lifted the hive up, put some tape over the escape because there's no more bees coming out of the chimney. And I started down the hip of the house to go down, and I started down, and I couldn't stop. (laughs) So I went down, and when I got to the bottom of the roof... She had an aluminum patio with aluminum <laughs> roof. The first two steps were pretty good. The third one, I went down through the, the patio onto a chase lounge with the bees. <laughs> and then? <laughs> the bees and me and the boxes and everybody went ass over in. And I remember her screaming through the screen door. If you think I'm going to come out and help you clean that mess up, you're mistaken. <laughs> so it took me all day to, and then I had to repair the roof. So <laughs> don't do that on your spare time. I uh, want to go back and, and ask you about something uh, that, that people listening to this might be interested in, which is the issue of foundation. You've mentioned it a couple of times. We should probably explain what that is and, and why you don't use it. Well, foundation is made out of beeswax. It's run through a press to print the size of cell on it. You can probably get just about any size cell you want on there. Most beekeepers just get foundation, and it's printed to be about 5.7 millimeters. But now you can get small cell, which is 4.9, and you can probably get 5.1. And the theory is that if you put that in your hive, the bees will make more honey because they won't have to spend their energy making comb. And then it'll be nice and straight. So there's a few things about it that I don't like. Mm -hmm. 
most of the wax that is sold or used to make foundation is rendered from old combs. Most of the uh, beekeepers in the U.S. nowadays treat their hives with chemicals. Beeswax is like a fat, so it likes to absorb things. I don't know what the word is for that, but they put all them pest strips in there like Apistan and all that shit, and it's absorbed into the wax. Say they have them combs for four or five or six or seven or eight or nine or ten years. Some beekeepers put them Apistan strips in three or four times a year. That wax is contaminated, so their hives are contaminated. They then take that wax and make foundation out of it. You then buy it and put it in your hive. Now you have a hive that's contaminated with, for simpler terms, it's contaminated with shit (laughs) or bad chemicals, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So now you're a new beekeeper or an old beekeeper. You're starting off with new foundation. You're handling that foundation. You're exposing your bees to it. The other thing is, is, if you've ever had natural cell, which means you use a starter strip or a, a, or a, a top bar that just give the bees this place to start and they festoon and they make their own wax, you'll notice they make all kinds of different sized cells. Now around here, you can look in the brood nest, the cell size is around 4.7 to 4.9. But then you have drone cells that are bigger, honey cells that are bigger. But what that means is, is the bees, the worker bees, decides what size cell they want. Now, how would a human know more about what is the most optimum size cell to make than a bee? Mm-hmm. Well, because the human thinks he's, the only, he's top of the food chain. He thinks that he knows more about bees than the bees. Even though man has been here for a nanosecond compared to the time the bee has been here. So I like the bees to make their own wax, their own size cells, on their own determinism on what they need. That's the other reason. Plus, it's clean because I don't treat the hives. So now they've got clean wax, clean combs. They have the cell size that they decided on, which is optimum for them. So now all they need is clean food and clean water, and they're going to be healthy. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, not all bees are healthy. Not all humans are healthy. So I don't want to be a paramedic for insects. Right. I want, if the bees are unfit or unhealthy, Mother Nature's plan is for them to cease and desist, for the healthy, strong bees to reproduce and make a strong population of bees. So the commercial bee industry has violated all the rules of nature. They artificially inseminate bees. Uh, They have big bees. They treat their bees. They medicate their bees. They expose them to chemicals. They do unnatural things. They feed them corn syrup, soy flour, and they pay people thousands of dollars to do all this science with zero results. Now, I myself... I'm very disappointed with science right now. Most beekeepers like me or you or the lady down the street, we can't afford to wait for that scientist to figure it out, whatever it is. So I believe in facts and observation. So I've observed that feral bees are healthy on the large part. I've observed that they make different sized cells. 
I've observed that when the environment does good, they do good. When the environment does bad, they'll reduce, it'll weed the garden. All the weak, gimpy, worthless bees die out and the strong are left. So that just increases the population, the feral bee cop population. If, if the world is going to depend on science and the commercial bee keepers to save the industry, they're in for a, a horrible experience because they manage bees from the viewpoint of making money. You know, I've had beekeepers tell me the reason the bee population is sick is because feral bees have diseases, and that's why their population is sick. And I've had them scream at me telling me that, right? So, like, I think that they have, on the most part, sickly bees, most of their bees die every year and they buy more bees. If they couldn't buy or make more bees, they would be out of business. But they do it around money. So I urge people not to buy almonds because I think it takes a yeah. gallon of water to make an almond. Mm -hmm. But if you watch that movie, uh, More Than Honey, you see what Mr. Miller says when he gets out of that truck? What's that sound? And you can hear the bees buzzing. He says... That's money. Mm -hmm. Then you see him spraying them almonds with the bees still on there. The worker bee comes home with pollen. She takes that pollen and puts it in the cell and tamps it in with her head. On the hairs on her head is a, is a fungus that gets into the pollen and helps break it down with the other microbes and yeast and stuff so they can eat it. Now it's in the pollen, it's in the fungus. It kills the fungus. They can't process the pollen. They got food now they can't eat. But all that, um, just for, because I'm not a scientist, all that shit they spray on the almonds, where's it go? It goes in the tree, it goes on the almonds, it goes on the ground, it's in the water, it's in the river. All those nitrates are in the water, in the river. The salmon don't even, can't even smell where their home is anymore. No salmon. So it is so much bigger than bees. It isn't funny. But Mr. Miller says it's money. I suggest everyone watch that movie. But they should do it on a Friday night so they can recover the next day because you can see how some of these people treat bees. Mm -hmm. It makes you wonder how they would treat people. Mm-hmm. Well, I made the mistake, I got to say this, of going to the state beekeeping convention this year because it was in Valencia. Oh, yeah. And I thought, well, you know, I'll go. It's local to see what it's like. And it's just what you're saying. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't about bees. It was more about how do we grow more almonds? Yeah. And how all do the, we get cheaper diesel? Exactly. We yeah. need cheaper diesel. The diesel prices are killing mm -hmm. me. Yep. What you see in there is a bunch of gray-haired white guys complaining <laughs> about diesel. Okay, now the backyard beekeeper don't fit that model. They're not old white guys that want cheap diesel. Most of the people or a lot of the people around LA that help start getting started in beekeeper, 80% of them are women. The high percentage of them have graduated from college. Uh, most of them want to understand bees and how to live with them. Their bees are stationary. They don't move them all over. I, I think most of the commercial beekeepers are unhappy because of how they do things and why they have to do them and the purpose they're doing them for. But 
is obvious there's not enough water for all them almonds. But Mother Nature didn't plan on all them almonds being in one spot. Mother Nature's plan was almonds were in lots of spots. It's the same with beekeepers. I think instead of 100 or 200 people owning all the bees, all the people should have a hive or two or belong to a cooperative that has a hive or two. Because believe me, those guys are going to do things that make them money. Now, Les Crowder came last year and did a queen-rearing thing with me and Walker over in Frogtown. And he said he's seen a truck of, of bees that were brought into California and they made them take them out because there was some fire ants on the, on the pallets and they won't let you bring them in. They took them out and they unloaded them and just left them. And he said he went up and opened some of them hives. Some of them had eight and nine apistan strips in them. Wow. Wow. Or pest strips of some kind. Right. He said they were so contaminated, the wax moss wouldn't go in there. <laughs> wow. Right? So, like, uh, I'd like to know how they dispose of their strips after they use them. Do they just put them in the garbage and then they go in the landfill? Yeah, and it's not even just that, because at the convention it was about, you know, these series of treatments that you have to do because the apistan doesn't work anymore, right? right? Unless you use all this other well, stuff. Well, you know, Mother Nature is pretty smart. She likes all her creatures to survive. So when they started treating bees with, you know, acylic acid, apistan, all those chemicals, what they did is they killed every weak, worthless mite on the planet. Right, they made super mites. <laughs> oh, they got left now. So it's indestructible, <laughs> toughest mites in the world. So I say to people, you know, I, people get some people get pissed off at me, and I say, you know, you need to have bees that have a symbiotic relationship with everything in their hive. You know, with the mites, the beetles, the hive beetles, the yeast, everything, because they said, will that work? I said, sure, it'll work. There's examples of it working. I said, look at Northern Ireland, you know, the, uh, the Northern Irish people hated the English, blew them up. English come over there and shot them, and they killed each other back and forth. And it didn't even resolve till they formed some kind of symbiotic relationship. They give those Irishmen a couple houses in commons, and they start talk in the House of Commons. They start talking, and it all started to resolve. It's not perfect, but they're not blowing each other up anymore. They turned in their guns. They've done a lot of things, but what they needed to do is they formed a symbiotic relationship, or in simpler terms, I think you can say they got in communication with each other. As much as they hated each other, they found something about each other they could like and they could agree on, and that's what changed everything. So it makes sense to me that Mother Nature thinks if man can't get along with his other creatures, Mother Nature knows eventually man will kill each other off and then they'll be back to normal. Exactly, and the bees will still be fine. So like my philosophy is, is I need bees that are healthy and strong enough to live with those mites with those uh, hive beetles, and and that's it. Because if, if all the bees have to be medicated and doctored and taken care of, that's really not sustainable. Right, right. Well, um, one maybe last topic uh, is uh, the kind of hive people should get, which is, uh, you know, the way you taught us was um, Langsworth hives with uh, no foundation in them. Right. And I was wondering what you think about uh, top bar hives. I think people should have the hive that embraces their experience. They want to have a top bar, go ahead, you know. They figured out how to, you know, Sam Comfort can make a top bar for two bucks. 
You know, uh, Les Crowder goes to Jamaica six months a year. They make top bars out of just little pieces of stick and canvas. And the bees propolize everything over there because those people don't have any money. Right. They might have a chainsaw. One of them will go cut down a palm tree or something, and they cut up all the parts. They make 10 hives, and they, you know, get over there and eat and food and set up 10 hives, and they catch hives, and it's become an economic boost to some of those poor people over there. Mm -hmm. I mean, they got bees that are... are uh, they're not necessarily really nice bees. They're the type of bees that know how to survive, you know, and that's what you need. You need a population of bees that can survive regardless of what's going on. In spite of man, in spite of what men is doing, they have to be able to make it. That's what they got over there. And then people just flourish at that. Like uh, I used to follow a gal on Facebook that makes them out of wicker and they hang them up, these big wicker hives, mm -hmm. you know? Right. And right. there's some esoteric, mystical oneness of the hive and everything. You know, I think that's fantastic. If they want to do that, that embraces their purpose and goal. That's what it's all about. You know, life actually should be about being happy. You know, my old friend John Toffer said, you should always have it your way. Do it your way. <laughs> and you'll be happy. <laughs> so whenever he built anything, he did it his way. Mm -hmm. And if your way is a top bar, if your way is a skep hive, you know, I've given people logs before. I've had bees in five-gallon olive oil cans. If that works for you, hell, go ahead. You gave It'll us be bees in, a, in a, a shop vac. Yeah, people right. can go to YouTube and, right. go, you know, search shop vac hive and watch me and you cut those bees out of that shop vac that I got from Calabasas. So the important thing is, is if you want to have a hive, you get one, and you're responsible about it. You want to make bread? Make it, man. If, if you want to grind your own wheat and use whatever the the yeast is in the air, go ahead. If you want to have fruit trees, plant them, mm -hmm. right? Because believe me, the way water's going, the way Monsanto's patenting all the seeds, the day's going to be coming where... You know, it's all going to be about food and water. Mm -hmm. It ain't going to be about drugs. It ain't going to be about this or that. It's going to be about food and water. And you better know what you're doing. There we go. So uh, if people want to see you on uh, YouTube, you're on YouTube uh, with a lot of actually yeah, really cool. I think cool... it's under Kirk Obeo. You know, Russell made a lot of uh, Right. Video. Cool instructional videos. Yeah. Of you capturing a swarm and then some other things, too. See, crushing there. strain. That's right. There's five or six there, you know, they can, uh, I, I'm on Facebook under Kirk Anderson, you know, so they can find me on there. I don't go there much anymore, but, you know, people can, uh, maybe on the podcast, you can put my uh, email address if anyone wants to email me. But if you want to keep bees, and that's been your dream, I'm more than glad to help you any way I can. Anybody. Cool. Kelly Kelly's here in the background. Any uh, last question for Kirk? Well, all right. Well, Kirk, thank you for being on the Root Simple Podcast. Yeah. Power to the people. Right on. <laughs> <laughs> that was Kirk Anderson. You can reach Kirk via his email, Kirk underscore Anderson at earthlink.net. You can also watch the YouTube videos he did with Russell Bates by searching for Backwards Beekeepers TV in YouTube. We'll have links in the show notes. To leave a question for the Root Simple Podcast, call us at area code 213-537-2591. 
or send us an email at rootsimple at gmail.com. We are Root Simple on Twitter. If you like the podcast, please leave a comment for us in the iTunes store. We're also available on Stitcher. And you can support the Root Simple podcast by buying a copy of one of our books through the Amazon links on our website. Our theme music is by Dr. Frankenstein. Thank you for listening. Thank you.